Rachel, delighted to have you today talking to us. You just recorded a podcast within Shortech Australia, so you've set the bar high in terms of, uh, I want to say competing, because we're all collaborating these days. <laughs> well, and I have to say, you know, you, you have to compete with Vanessa as a host. She's fantastic. Well, you already made me feel humble. You were over in, in California, in Palo Alto. Extraordinarily enough, the weather over there hasn't been quite as good as and then here today in London. We've got bright sunshine. Yeah, yesterday was one of the first sunny days in a while. And, you know, we brag about all of our sunshine in California, but with climate change, there are wild things happening. And and California is going through what we're calling an atmospheric river. In our our little pocket of the Bay Area, we've gotten 163% of the rain that would be anticipated for the entire season already this year. And really terrible weather, actually. Well, atmospheric river, that's a new term. It was what, like two, three years ago that California was going through some serious drought. And now you sort of, all the rain you should have had then, plus some more by the signs of things. So we're definitely happy to, to have our sunshine back. Well, let's keep talking about California because you yourself came out of Stanford University. You did mechanical engineering as amongst some other degrees. And your CEO and co-founder of Geosite, which you founded after you left Stanford. Uh, initially, I saw you were actually working for the Department of Defense. Really interested to hear a little bit more about that. And then you've got $5 million of funding and you've already got uh, some well-known insurance companies. And I think one of them is backing you. We're going to hear a bit more about Geosite in a minute and what you're doing to reduce uncertainty and help improve accuracy for insurers in assessing property risk worldwide. But you've also got another side to the business with helping the US search and rescue. So a lot to cover in there. But thank you very much for spending the time to, to reveal a bit more about what you've been up to. No problem. I definitely love talking about this stuff. Well, you're challenge is there are quite a few companies out there offering aerial imagery, remote imagery, property. We've had quite a few of them to uh, talk to on the podcast. So in terms of what you're doing with Geosite, and maybe take this back to when you looked at founding the company, you know, what was it that led you to decide this would be a good area to, to build a business around? So I became obsessed with the problem that we're solving at Geosite back in 2016, actually. A few classmates and I were hired to do a giant study of the future of the space industry. And so we were looking at all of these satellite constellations going up, and then more broadly, the entire geospatial industry. These aerial companies that you were mentioning, the drone companies that were collecting data, all of the different geospatial analytics companies, as well as modeling companies for all sorts of things, fires, floods, agriculture, you know, vegetation encroachment, you name it. And we were looking at this problem of the mass amount of information that was out there and the difficulty with using that data. I just want to jump in there, Rachel, because I'm just really intrigued back to your comment about you looking at the future of space. That's not like a dream job for many people, but I guess the lure of insurance was more exciting than, than space. But what was it that took you from up there in the clouds down to the reality of what we're doing on the ground in insurance? When we started the company, all of our work was with the Department of Defense. And we knew that there would be commercial markets that would start to use all of this data. And we knew that it was extremely valuable. And we watched every single major market. So agriculture, energy, insurance, logistics, you name it. And really, we started to watch the uptake of geospatial data use and insurance getting really fast. And so the entire insurance market has gone from maybe not understanding what data was available to now understanding that there's a lot of really important data available. And then the next step is utilization of that data. 
Hello, great to have you back. And if this is your first time, welcome and delighted you've made it this far. I'm Matthew Grant, and we're back again this week with another one of our fascinating corporate members. But before we go back to my discussion with Rachel, I just wanted to let you know that we do a whole lot more in stack than the podcast. We're publishing content most days and have live and digital events almost every week. We work with over 180 companies, and last year, 100,000 people around the world read, listened, or joined us in person www.instec.co for more information on what we are up to and contact details in there and in the episode notes. And and also that point earlier about it's an intelligent utilization of it as well, I suspect. So there's a lot, you know, in a sense, the more information there is, often the harder it is to know what to do with it and to choose what to do with it. So are you performing a role of essentially helping people on taking all of the information and actually being able to get some intelligence insights of it so that actually guide people what they should do as opposed to just have data. Yeah, that's exactly it. If, you know, for the math people on the call, it's a giant combinatorial problem, right? So the more sources of data that you have and the more problems that you can feasibly solve with that data, the harder it becomes to do that mixing and matching, not just from a technical standpoint, but also from a procurement and, you know, study of data standpoint. I actually got to confess, I did an engineering degree as well. And uh, I don't think I came across that term. I must have missed that class. Combinatorial is basically a mathematical function that says, if you have to multiply everything by everything else, because each of the combinations might be a solution to the problem, right? So maybe in insurance to solve natural catastrophe claims, you need, you know, satellite company X aerial company Y, and data analytics company Z. And to find each of those is a massive problem just for that specific natural catastrophe. Now you talk global carriers that have, you know, catastrophes globally. They have underwriting that they're doing globally that they might rely on geospatial data for. They have reserving. They have new product development. They have each of these different problem sets for which the data might be valuable. And selecting that data and then applying it accurately and at scale is very, very hard just because of the number of potential solutions is huge. And so that's where, you know, very nerdily we got obsessed was how do you take all of this amazing data and then allow it to be applied to so many different problems? But I just wanted to just dig into that a little bit because it, the way you describe that, it strikes me that there's two different types of data set you could look at. Well, there's one that's an insurance company's own data. And so you come and help them do that analysis. Combinatorial, I think it was. And then there's also, as you're looking at third-party data. So in terms of what you're offering at Geosite, are you looking at both of those? Is it both working with companies' own data and how that's combined maybe with third-party data, or are you just doing that uniquely with third-party data? It's a really good question. I would actually take a step back and classify it as four different buckets of data. So the first is broadly internal and external data, data that belongs to the carrier and data that that they're trying to procure. On the data they're trying to procure side, there's really three. So you have observed data. So this is your imagery from any sort of platform, space, aerial, drone, even the cameras that are doing street view, right? Any of these kind of observed pieces of data not just visual spectrum, like a picture, but also radar, like synthetic aperture radar, which we can talk about later. And then the next bucket is modeled data. 
So there are a lot of really brilliant companies, a couple of your guys' members that we're partners with, right? So Provisico or Fathom, these other folks who take all this amazing data about what's happening on the earth and turn it into a model of future flooding or current flooding or predicted storm outcomes. Then you have other bulk data sets that are geospatially referenced. So this could be things like point of interest data. Okay, we know this address. What business is at this address and what do we know about it, right? Or during COVID, you know, COVID data about what was happening in different regions, right? So kind of created geospatial data. So those are the three main buckets of the data that might be applied to a problem. So Rachel, I'm just going to jump in there because I want to make sure we captured those three different data sets before we keep going. So it sounds like, if I recall this correctly, you had observed data, which is the various different types of imagery from up above and on the ground. Then you had the model data where people are actually deriving that as, as model data, as name implies. And you kind of got like a all other bucket, other spatially observed data that could be all sorts of other things. Those are the kind of three categories. And you've got your fourth one of carrier data. Yeah. So you can imagine even just with those three, it's already such a complicated problem to know as much as you can at a reasonable cost about a point on the earth. And then if you're a large carrier, you have a bunch of information about specific properties. And so that is your your policy information and whatever data you collected when you underwrote that property. And you might have claims history, but that's probably sitting in a different database, a different system. So the carriers themselves have tons of location data that isn't actually geographically tied. And so associating them is very hard. One of the things that we really love is when we work with carriers, we get to use location kind of as that Rosetta Stone. So if you have claims data about a location, whether it's here were these storms that happened, here were the claims that occurred, and you have underwriting data about here is what we know about this property, and here's what we think about you know the potential risks to it, being able to combine those in our system is something that we've seen over and over again. And so it's this really complex matrix of, of data coming from so many sources. Rich, I just want to jump in on that location point, because you're talking about that. It reminds me that location identification is still one of the most difficult ways to get a simple, referenceable way of understanding a building. And very clearly, we've got latitude, longitude, which geographically is precise, but it's a very cumbersome set of numbers to, to use uh, organizations like what three words have come up with their rather quirky way of doing it, which still doesn't really have seemed to be adopted. We talk about using zip codes, addresses, but you know, where are we going with this? Are we starting to tend towards something that is sort of a bit like a license tag or a license plate on a car where it's just a little bit simpler and it's linked to unique building and unique latitude, longitude? It's a really interesting question because there's a little bit of a perception in the way that you talk about it that lat long is accurate. And that actually isn't necessarily true for most carriers in the way that they're using lat long. So we've found inside of people's policy in force, typically 30% of that policy in force is actually geolocated correctly. So there are a bunch of layers to this that are very complex. The first is folks who have lat longs with like 20 significant digits, it always makes us chuckle just a little bit because it's definitely unnecessary and definitely inaccurate. There's a great comic out there, you know, for our listeners if they want to Google it while we talk. XKCD is the the name of the, the comic strip. And they have one on lat longs that I find very funny and the number of significant digits. But even if you have a very precise pin on the earth, 
The issue is those lat longs are often generated using something called geocoding. So geocoding is essentially the math of going from an address to a lat long. Different geocoders have wildly different assumptions. So a lot of geocoders were developed to help people drive to locations. And so when that pin falls on the map, there's usually two outcomes. The first is the pin drops on the street near the property that you're looking for. The second is that the pin drops at the center of a parcel for that address. And this differs by country, it differs by region, rural, urban, etc. There are different assumptions in those geocoders depending on which one you use. The issue with locating things using a lot long is what we really care about in insurance isn't what's happening at that pin. What we care about is what is happening to this building that we have made a promise to help financially protect right? Or at least financially create a safety blanket around. And when you're just looking at that pin, if you're looking at a street, anybody who's looked at a lot of flooding data will know oftentimes streets are set down lower than the buildings if there was really good city planning, right? And that's so that the streets flood and the homes don't. And on a parcel, a lot of times people will build their home at the highest point on that parcel, or if they're not thinking about flooding, maybe at the lowest point on that parcel for various reasons. And so if that pin is dropped in the wrong place, you'll have these assumptions about you know, flooding or fire or which building is actually the property you're looking at that are wildly incorrect. My short answer to your question is this is not a solved problem. It's a very, very difficult problem. And it's one that when we started the company and we started engaging with carriers, we were so excited to apply really, really exquisite models and nascent data sources to all of their policies. And we realized actually the first step needed to be helping people find the actual properties, uh, both commercial and residential, and actually infrastructure even, find them first, then apply the data. And so we ended up building into our system a really robust geocoding algorithm that will look at a bunch of different geocoders, look at a bunch of different building footprints, parcel data, et cetera, and actually locate that property with higher accuracy. Finding things on the surface of the earth is actually very hard. So Rachel, you mentioned parcel in there a couple of times. Just for those people that aren't familiar with insurance language, could you just describe what a parcel actually is? Yeah. A parcel is essentially a bounding box for the entire property. So not the building. It would include everything else. So imagine that you bought, you know, a a farm. The All of the lands would be a part of that parcel. But a lot of times, especially in PNC insurance, you're worried mostly about the buildings and specifically the buildings that you're insuring. And so there's a difference between looking at the whole of that property and just the buildings. And I want to come back to that point about the precision, because as you're talking about that, what I'm realizing is there's a certain level of uncertainty that you can't resolve beyond when you're doing this, because if you've got a building, you're trying to get too precise about the location, it doesn't really tell you enough because the building itself occupies quite a large area. And so if you try to resolve it down to a very high level of resolution of literally you know, feet or, or meters or millimeters of where that building is horizontally, kind of say what what you need to be able to do is understand what is the footprint of the building and then therefore what is the uncertainty or what is the hazard or however you're trying to manage it within that building as opposed to trying to get down to that resolution. Have I sort of interpreted that correctly? Absolutely. The way that I usually explain to, to people is 
we're working at the end of the day with remote sensing data. What that means is you're trying to tell something from a distance. You're not standing there at the building. And so there's always going to be uncertainty, but it's about reducing that uncertainty by using more data, right? And so any data scientist can tell you if you have a single data point, you're not going to have as much certainty as if you're able to consume a lot of data and then come up with a best version of the truth that you can find using the data that you have. And so whether it's you know figuring out where the building footprint is or dealing with the assumptions behind the model data or the peril data or whatever it is that you're you know intersecting with that information, there's going to be uncertainty. And it's about figuring out the right ROI for reducing that certainty, right? You could have absolutely exquisite, perfect data on every single property, but it would cost a fortune, right? And so for carriers, it's this balance of, okay, at the portfolio level, do we have a level of certainty that we are happy with? And how much are we willing to pay for more and more certainty? And also to that ROI point, the return on investment, what's the trade-off between sending somebody out, an individual out to go and look at the property versus you can trust the remote data because that's good enough or it's maybe even better sometimes than sending somebody out. Yeah, absolutely. And it's really just a balance, right? And it's it's carrier dependent, it's geography dependent, it's product dependent. There are some, you know, insurance products where it's worth spending a lot of money on trying to have good answers. And it's also dependent on the point in the policy life cycle. So if you have, you know, some sort of monitoring on really expensive commercial facilities, that might be worth it. But doing that for each residential property probably isn't. And so being able to kind of pull those levers to get the right data at some cost that is necessary to run a business. Rich, as you're talking, I'm reminded of, you know, I started off my career, and I think there's some parallels between the, the availability of data for geocoding, which did exist, but there wasn't much choice with the television services. So here in the UK, we had four TV channels to choose from. You could probably get a couple of hours worth of entertainment in the evening. Today, with streaming services, we've got hundreds and not thousands of things to choose from, and we spend our lives flicking around trying to figure out what we want to watch. It feels like, to me, there's something similar happening with, with data, and that's the problem you're looking to sort out, which is people now have got a lot of choice, but they don't quite know what they should use and how to use it. Is that a good analogy for what you're doing at Geosite? That's a perfect analogy. I think there's some decision fatigue that can happen there, but there's also expertise. Like imagine if you had someone who was an absolute movie guru, but also knew everything that was happening in your brain at that moment, had context for the exact situation you were in, emotionally what you were looking for, intellectually what you were looking for. And so they not only knew your own brain, but they also knew everything that was on TV. And they could say, oh, you know what you need right now, Matthew? you really need to watch this exact movie. It's going to be perfect for this situation. You'd be like, great. So if you had like a recommendation engine to help you with that, and a lot of these streaming companies pay a lot of money to try to sort that out because it is really valuable to be able to suggest things to people. And it's exactly that, but for geospatial data. That's a really scary thought. I would first want not to go into my brain and, and reveal what programs I should be watching on television, but I think it makes a lot of sense in insurance. And and so in terms of who you're working with, you've got organizations that are providing data to insurance companies. Sometimes they go direct to them. But are you also then collaborating with the providers from satellite, drones, aircraft on the ground to sort of help them get into the insurance space and, and act as a kind of intermediary or aggregator of data from those organizations as opposed to your competing with them? 
Absolutely. I From the very earliest days of the company, our goal was to make sure we never competed with data providers in the geospatial industry. And so that includes, you know, folks who are collecting data like you know, you mentioned aircraft and spacecraft and drones, but also the modeling companies. So the folks creating those property characteristic models, folks creating, even building footprint models, right? Things like that. And pulling all that data in and then making it usable. And so a lot of times our partners upstream, the data providers or model providers are also excited to work with us because we deal with all the plumbing to get that data into all of the different parts of a carrier. And that can be a huge, huge technical and bureaucratic lift that we have streamlined. I want to come back to the plumbing in a minute, but I just got a question for you on back on our uncertainty question. It's about aerial resolution. And so I've spoken to a number of people providing data, looking particularly at vertical resolution. And that's obviously very critical from flood. But in your mind, what is the the best that an insurance company or a user of data could hope for in terms of the accuracy of the vertical resolution of the data that they can acquire from above? And I realize that's a slightly varied question depending on whether you're using aircraft or satellite, but it'd it just be useful to know, you know what, what's the best that people could expect to be able to get. Yeah, actually, I'll answer your question with a comment on the idea of resolution, because oftentimes there's this perception that higher resolution is always better. And I think that that's a fallacy because, you know, to our ROI question earlier, oftentimes having the highest resolution data isn't necessary to solve a problem at hand. And so it might be that, you know, aerial imagery is is probably my favorite. Um, aerial imagery is extremely expensive to collect because somebody has to get in an aircraft with a very expensive camera. The data has to be really precisely processed. And then you have this really rich data. So analyzing it, you can pull a lot from it, but those models cost a lot of money to run. And, you know, whereas with satellite imagery, if you are able to use something as low resolution as three meter, that data is much less expensive. And the analysis is much more crude but you can do a much broader scale analysis. And so really, you know, from space, you can get, you know, up to 30 centimeter resolution. That's the, the limit on space imagery that's sold commercially. So that's different than, you know, what the government has access to. But that 30 centimeter data looks beautiful, right? It's never going to look as beautiful as, saddle, as drone imagery or aerial imagery, but it looks very nice. Whereas 33 meter is much more coarse. It's like the size of a car for each pixel. That data can still be used for something like a flood. That data can be used for something like a bushfire or a tornado or things like that. And so that resolution is is really varied across those sources, and that's okay. Well, I'm going to come back to that in a minute because that really gets us onto the topic of claims. But just what I did want to talk about the, the plumbing. So I know you're doing some work with Socotra to bring that to the front of the underwriting process. So could you just talk a little bit about how that works in, in practice? Yeah, so we we launched our partnership with Socotra in fall of last year. And really, you know, if you, we've talked a lot about the top side of the funnel, right? Pulling in all the geospatial data, making sense of it, figuring out where to apply it. But the real challenge for carriers is great. We can have all this crazy important information, but how do we get it down to the point of decision making and to the person who needs it when they need it? 
without creating more work for them or more programs for them to use. And the best way to do that is to take that data and plug it straight into a policy admin system or a workbench that's already in use in a way that is interpreted enough to be used directly. And so, you know, we have APIs that will feed into those systems as well as visualization tools that can work alongside those systems. And so with Socotra, the key focus was around underwriting. How do you allow an underwriter to type in an address and then get back all of the different property characteristic data? And maybe that property characteristic data is coming from one geospatial AI company in Houston and a different one in London and a different one in Tokyo. And then we touched on this a little bit as you're talking about resolution, but what are you offering for people when it comes to post-event, when the hurricanes may landfall or the floods come in or the wildfires been? We've touched all sorts of catastrophes, but especially, you know, hurricanes and flooding in Australia. Those have been the big ones for us. The interesting thing for any startup working in insurance is how do you go from this is a great idea to actual adoption. For us, the most rapid adoption we've seen is on the claim side, right? It's usually a reactive, there's been a giant storm, there's been some sort of major catastrophe, and we need to respond to that as fast as possible. And so on the claim side, there's tons of different data that becomes rapidly relevant. So you might have a list of, here's our policy in force in that geography. We don't know who's been affected, and we need to do reserving. We need to understand the volume of claims that we have headed our way, and we need to actually take care of our customers, right? There's this promise between insurance companies and their policyholders that, hey, we're going to show up and take care of you. And when an insurance company can do that very well, they those customers walk away with a really good experience, and that helps create a really good customer satisfaction store, score, which really helps them get more customers, et cetera. So really, you know, customer experience can be at the core of, of that claims process. And so we've touched that that entire spectra of the, the claims system. Yeah. And I, as we all know, there's lots of opportunities for improvements in that whole claims process. So I can see that there's a big opportunity in there. I saw you're also working with QBE. Are you able to talk a bit about what you're doing with them? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the, the two big carriers that we talk about a lot are MSNAD and QBE. With QBE, we helped them look at Hurricane Ian. So QBE has you know quite a bit of their portfolio on the East Coast of the US. And so Hurricane Ian was a large-scale event. And so being able to, you know, while leading into the storm, during the storm and after the storm, understand everything that was going on was extremely, extremely valuable. And so with them, we started there. And then that has bled to every other part of the business where now that you have this rich data on here is what happened during this catastrophe, you can then look backwards and say, what did the models say? What sort of exposures could we have known about? How could we do better underwriting in the future for these kinds of policies? And so with them, we've really been able to explore the entire value chain, which, you know, as a startup who came out of the defense world uh, has been immensely, immensely valuable. And you mentioned QBE in there. I mean, I know you, in addition to the US, you're also in Australia, Japan, and Europe. So globally, presumably, is the next stop. You touched on all the regions that that were really heavy in, so North America, Japan, Australia. In Australia is actually our absolute favorite project that we've worked on in insurance. So the ethos of our team is very service-oriented. So our biggest government contract is around search and rescue. So our platform's used for search and rescue across the, the continental U.S. and Alaska. And when we entered the Australian market, there were a lot of catastrophes that were ongoing, especially flooding. 
So there's really bad flooding happening along the Murray River. And we were able to work with a carrier to look at, okay, everybody has been evacuated for the last two months, and they're going to continue to be evacuated from this area. But whose homes are going to be a total loss? Who can we start releasing emergency funds to so they can get back on their feet faster? And so that was one of our favorites because it was a case study where only remote sensing data, only satellite imagery, aerial imagery, you know, from the sky sort of data could actually help resolve the situation because these houses are completely underwater. And so being able to do that at scale was really exciting. So it's, you know, we've seen the exact same use case in each of these geographies, which has been, you know, both devastating, but also a really good opportunity uh, to see this data used. And, and make a difference, of course. I mean, you sometimes forget that insurance is actually what gets people back on their feet and, you know, gets their life back to normal, which is a really important part of it. And on that search and rescue side, can you just talk a little bit about what that means in practice? Because I know that your technology has been used to discover quite a few people, but is that linked to these catastrophes or is it other situations outside of the major catastrophes themselves? So search and rescue globally, there are really cool treaties around how you rescue people you know, all over the world and how you make sure they make it home and all of that. For the U.S., it's triaged at the federal level by the Air Force. And a lot of times these rescues are people like the people on my team who like to go on massive adventures. So it's not necessarily disaster related. When when something becomes disaster related, typically FEMA will take over. But, you know, if there's a hiker that's stranded on a mountain, that becomes part of uh, the Air Force Rescue Coordination Center. What are you providing as geosite to help locate that missing person? You might immediately think of something like Mission Impossible, right? Where we're like putting the satellite on the person and we're finding them on the mountain. But actually, it's much more mundane than that and actually much more relatable to insurance than you may think. So in the U.S., you have 50 states and each of those states have different procedures for civilian search and rescue. So there are different policies, different steps, different people who have to be notified, and it's highly, highly regulated. And so the biggest lift on the geospatial side for geosite and aiding with search and rescue is actually taking a bunch of really complex policies and information about the steps that need to be taken for each geography and then tying that to the search and rescue data. So it's actually geospatial policy data that is the most complex about this situation. So if a hiker is lost in California, there's a certain set of data sources and steps that you can take to rescue that person. If the person is in Montana or New Mexico, those steps are very different. And so it was the first time as a company where policy information, and I don't mean policy in terms of insurance policy, I mean policy in terms of laws and agreements between the federal and local governments, become applicable to that rescue. And so while satellite imagery is very helpful uh, and, you know, all of the other data is helpful, it's actually taking procedures and then attaching them geographically and then applying that at scale that became the most important part of that work. That's really interesting. I mean, I can see how that can be very scalable and translatable to other areas of insurance as well. You're just following, I guess, a logic tree. It gets back to your engineering, doesn't it, of actually this is kind of what the policy or the process says you should do. Now here's a way to go and do it and follow it through until a successful conclusion. And hand that data in an orderly fashion to the person making those decisions. They don't need all that information right away. It's okay, we know that it's this state. 
Here's the information that you need because we know it's this date. Okay, great. Here's this next step that you've taken. Here's the right data for helping you with that step. And really acting as, you know, kind of a virtual assistant on that by just giving them the data that's relevant uh, for the step they're on. Like a sat nav, you know, like turn left, turn right, go 100 yards. Doesn't give you the whole day. Doesn't give you the whole journey all in one go. You can possibly compute that. You can start to, yeah, I can start to see where the overlap is. And then you mentioned partners earlier on, Fathom Physico. What was your strategy around companies you're partnering with? Our goal is to know about every geospatial company on the planet. And I think we do a pretty good job of that. This is a longstanding offer that I've made many times. If anyone can find a geospatial company and we don't know about it, I will send them a bottle of very nice wine. So our goal is, you know, step one, know about all of them, right? And understand them. And then because we can't boil the ocean, we can't add every data source to our system at once, we really focus on what are our customers' needs? What are the problems of the insurance industry and specifically property and casualty carriers? And then how do we make sure that we have that data on our system? And so we talk to those partners, we bring them on board, we bring them revenue, they're happy, we're happy, everybody wins from that. But there is a really deep analysis of their data and of their methods before we bring that data onto our system. So we've put each of our partners through several gates to make sure that they are data that we are okay with passing on to our customers. Well, you've set a challenge for our research team. So we have our Ask Atlas database, and we've been tracking many satellite and other types of imagery companies. So I'm going to ask them to run analysis and see if we can get a bottle of <laughs> California wine to find some companies that, uh, that you don't know about and then potentially could go in. We, uh, we have some good wine out here, you know? So. <laughs> yeah. Well, is, it, is it one bottle of wine per company? Is that how the, the deal works? I mean, that's the deal. So uh, send them all my way. We will do. Fantastic. And then just want to come back, Rachel, a little bit about, as you start to wrap up, your own experience of building a business. You've been going, what was it, five years now? We could have a whole podcast on what it takes to be a founder. Maybe we should. If there's one thing above all else, though, that your advice to be, your advice would be to people that are looking to start up a business at a fairly early stage in their career, what would that be? My advice would be only start a company if the problem that you're getting to solve with that company is something you're absolutely obsessed with. You know, I started thinking about this geospatial problem back in 2016, two years before starting Geosite. And I studied mechanical engineering and manufacturing was really my specialty. And I love factories. They make me so happy. And I really love, you know, process efficiency. And that's absolutely my jam. And even though, you know, I have this expertise and this other passion, I kept coming back to thinking about how people are going to be able to use geospatial data and feeling really, really driven by making sure that this data is accessible and useful. And it just kept coming up. And I think of, you know, how many times I've described what we do. And even to this day, I get so excited uh, that people have to be like, okay, wait, you're getting too far ahead. We need to slow down. Explain this part to me. Explain that part to me. Because I just love, love, love what we do. So the first piece is find something that you're absolutely obsessed with. And then the next part is make sure that it's not just a research project, that there's actually a market. And so in business school or design school, they'll talk about feasibility, viability, desirability, and making sure you check all three of those. Um, so feasibility is like, is it a pipe dream? Is it cold fusion, which we're always 20 years away from? Or is it something that is actually uh, feasible in the world? Viable is, you know, will someone pay money for it? Is there actually a market? Because there's a lot of really, really cool technology that 
the cost of that technology is higher than the value in the market. So that's your viability. And then the last is desirability. Is this an important enough problem for people to solve that they will actually take action, especially in enterprise you know, sales, especially with something like insurance, right? There's a lot of inertia and that inertia is there because rocking the boat is a very dangerous thing because so many systems have to work and there's such complex systems that if it isn't a highly desirable problem to solve, that inaction will also mean that you don't have adoption of your technology. So you have to check all three of those boxes and pick something that you're just maddeningly obsessed with. Yeah, I think that's a fantastic way to describe it because that first point about you've got to be passionate about it. I mean, that's what keeps the founder, the CEO going when everything else is stacked against them. It's like, no, I still really believe in this. And it sort of links to your final point. You know, the reason they believe that is often because they've experienced a problem or they know people have experienced a problem and, they, and they've got a really clear mental vision of how to get there. Now, you know, some companies pivot uh, because they, the, the problem changes. But I think that's really, really good advice, particularly starting off in a business. Well, it's the beginning of your day. And I don't know if you've got a lot to do. A couple more things before we let you go. Well, first of all, thank you for supporting Instec. You'd love to know what it was about Instec that brought you to us. Yeah, for us, I mean, we are a geosites, a group of geospatial nerds and geospatial nerds who understand government very well. And now more and more insurance, we're bringing in teammates where that's their their core industry. But for us, Instech was such a good opportunity to learn about the insurance space and meet peers who, you know, maybe understood our technology, maybe didn't, but really understood insurance and gave us access to, you know, this world of folks that we could run ideas past and that could help us understand how to take what we knew how to talk about in one market and speak about it in another and help us translate and even even just this podcast, you know, this entire time you've been, you know, helping me translate into into terms that folks will understand outside of the very esoteric field of geospatial analysis. Thank you for your support. And it was good to see you in London last year. We may well be in the US this year, but have you got any more plans to come back over the UK? I know that I will be there in the next couple of months. My travel calendar is pretty, pretty bonkers because, you know, Australia, London, New York, just always popping across the ocean in both directions. Well, Reggie, we've covered it a lot. We've talked about the XKCD cartoon strip that I'm going to go and rush off and Google and find out what that talks about latitude longitude. We've talked about combinatorial. I think I got that right, probably not Combinatorial. Quite. Combinatorial. <laughs> uh, it's been tremendous. Just before I let you go, is there anything that we haven't covered that you'd like to make sure we do talk about? covered a lot of different stuff. You know, one of the things that I'll always say is, and this goes back to your question about, you know, advice for founders and how to found a company is make sure that you're focusing on problems and not technologies. It's it's very, very easy to chase shiny objects and get excited about satellites or drones or, you know, new kinds of data. But unless the core of any sort of organizational change and innovation adoption is rooted in a key problem that is trying to be solved, the likelihood of its adoption is, you know, really drastically decreased. Yeah, I completely agree. Uh, I think that's a great place to end. Rachel, thank you very much. Very much appreciate the time. I've learned a lot and uh, really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. Hi, it's Henry here from Instec's research team. Underwriters spend 40% of their time on administrative tasks, according to an Accenture survey. 
Underwriters, claims staff, and people across insurance are now looking to use technology to automate processes which they previously did manually, such as extracting data from submissions, triaging claims, ingesting border road documents, and many more. Instech's new report, Automating Processes and Speeding Up Operations, 30 Companies We Know, looks at how insurance organizations are automating data processes in practice and profiles 30 companies providing relevant solutions. You can download the report for free from our website at instech.co slash reports. Well, another victory for insurance with Rachel deciding to start her business to help insurers and their clients understand their risks better, given all the other choices she had. Now, if you're interested in how we can help you, whether that's finding your business partner if you are an insurer or helping spread the word if you are building a company, then please do contact me, Matthew Grant, on LinkedIn or any of us. Hello at instec.co. That's it. We're done. <laughs>